This week on Conversations of Inspiration, I'm chatting to Sahar Hashimi, OBE, founder of Coffee Republic. Sahar co-founded her business alongside her brother Bobby in 1995 and Coffee Republic was extraordinarily the UK's first coffee bar. Scaling her business from one to 110 coffee shops within five years, Sahar's success was astounding, considering she opened her business nearly 25 years ago, before the internet was readily available, before smartphones or social media existed, and three years before Starbucks had come to the UK. I had the most enlightening, honest and soulful founder-to-founder conversation with Sahar. Talking about her experiences of scaling a business, her battles with the imposter syndrome and how selling her business was the most heartbreaking, painful moment of her life. It's a chat that's going to stay with me forever. Connecting with her on so many levels, Sahar is a true entrepreneur, someone determined and passionate and committed to changing the world for the better through business. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration Back in 2006 I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table And since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses And I believe that having a business doing what you love Is the key to a happy, fulfilled life My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Sahar. Thank you so much for your time today. Your name was on the list, on the wall. We have this podcast wall and your face has been cut out. I cannot tell you for how long. You're one of the most inspirational women and I've met you once before and I instantly adored you and you're one of the nicest people I've met. And what you don't know about business is just not worth knowing. You have so much wisdom to share with this community. So thank you, Sahar, for joining me. No, it's a complete pleasure to spend time with you, Holly. It's a great excuse. (laughs) First of all, I'd love to start with the first business you started back in 1995, over 25 years ago. The thing that always astounds me is that you are the woman who brought coffee shops to the UK. You were the first to open a coffee chain in the UK, three years before Starbucks. And now today there are over 24,000 coffee shops in Britain. It's just so mind-blowing and I cannot wait to talk to you about this. But I'd love to begin with your story. You started out as a lawyer, but you realised that that wasn't quite the job for you. Um, Yes, exactly. I mean, I think being brought up in the 80s, um, I'm sure the listeners are a much younger generation, but we were brought up to these legal programs. You know, there was Legal Legals and Ali McBeal, and there was something very glamorous about being a lawyer. I mean, I just yes. can't imagine there are any yes, programs Ali about McBeal. lawyers. Oh Ali McBeal, and there was LA Law, and kind yes, of. Ex- you're right. So that was just, you know, the power and being a lawyer. So I've always wanted to be. That's really what I set out. And it was sort of a dream, really. And I, against all odds, you know, I wasn't particularly intelligent at school. You know, I can't remember saying to my girls' school, I went to very small girls' 
law school before I went to City of London School, saying I wanted to sort of study law. And I remember you know, the teacher going like, well, that's impossible. I mean, you know, and just, but I just, for some reason I wanted to, and I made it through and I became a lawyer and I went to the company, which I sort of, they rejected me three times. So Did yeah, they? fourth time lucky. And it was a really glamorous film. I just loved it. It was just really a dream come true when I went to this And film. how old were you there? Um, kind of must have been just straight after university. So yeah, in my sort of early 20s. Yeah, maybe so 22, 23. So were you um, from an entrepreneurial family? Oh, gosh, not at all, Holly. I mean, I just, I didn't know a single entrepreneur. I didn't know what they were, I think. You know, my my mum was was a housewife, you know, incredibly talented, but she dedicated her whole life to sort of looking after us. And my dad was a sort of corporate executive. And we just didn't have anyone that started a business. I mean, that was so left field. And I just remember, I don't think I even knew, I mean, I suppose Richard Branson was a role model, but I mean, there was just nowhere that I even knew about him or, you know, he was just somewhere very far away in some quirky land that other people exist. And back then there were absolutely no coffee shops in London. So you as this young lawyer, you weren't, you know, having a lunch break and just popping out to the coffee shop. Exactly. So I'll take you to criminology. I'm, yes. I'm a lawyer, got yes. my dream job. Yeah. Love my training, sort of what you call the articles, sort of love that I'm going around, getting involved in everything. And then suddenly I qualified as a lawyer. And it was almost like the sort of music stopped as soon as I qualified because they literally, you know, gave me a room you know, shut the door and just would shove documents under the door for me to kind of amend and draft. And, and I just remember, you know, complaining to my colleagues going, what's wrong? Why do we never get out? Like, what's going on with that clients? Why are we only sitting there with these documents? And I could see at that time, actually, that other people were shining suddenly. They were really coming to, to the, you know, they, they were finding their star. They were blossoming. They were blossoming. And I was not blossoming. I was dying slowly in that kind of cubicle. And I just remember just this unhappiness and just thinking, actually, what is this? And if I told my parents, I wouldn't even dare tell them. It was almost like, well, grow up. This is life. Work's not meant to be fun. What are you looking for to have fun? But I just wanted to love it somehow. I just I just knew that there was something else there. And I remember the only entrepreneur, actually, was my cousin who lived in California, was married to an entrepreneur. I remember going to his office and I just remember thinking the buzz that he had his own office. And, you know, it was very creative. Yeah, and as yeah, a lawyer, energy I'd, and... I'd never seen a creative environment. And I don't know, something. Mm. It, it wasn't like in my conscious brain, but I just remember thinking... It's fun. He's having a lot of fun. But I never connected that to what I wanted. But it ended up staying in this law firm. And it just was sort of really eating into me. And I'd been there for three years qualified, so five years in total. Just no fun. And then something happened. And often, I think, in life, um, we get these shocks that, in a way, get us out of our comfort zone. Like, And sometimes it's so difficult to get out until you get a real, you know, real shake up. And what happened to me was I come from a close family of four, so my mum and dad, my brother and I, but very, very close-knit. And what happened to me in January 1993, 21st of January 1993, was I was actually, had just come back from a placement in Paris. I was living at home and um, and my dad got a stroke, kind of very much in in front of my eyes. And I just remember he started sort of losing his um, power of speech um, in front of me. And I just didn't know what it was. And my mum, who was actually travelling at the time, and my brother Bobby was in New York, I just remember I just sort of took him to the nearest hospital to go and a taxi and my dad died that night and um and I was very very young and I was sort of you know 25 I think at that time it was just such a shock and I just remember like he just died in front of my own eyes but it was just very much realizing after that event you know they all came and you know we sort of went into a period of mourning and um I think I took I don't know sort of two or three weeks off but I just remember going back to work after that and just thinking actually there is no comfort zone. So at a very young age, getting that realisation that actually 
it can just turn so quickly. And just seeing that sort of whole value of, you know, almost sort of seize the day for and life. want of a, and life. Because just realising it can just go like that. And I just remember when I got back, I was really thinking in this law firm, thinking, like, what am I doing? And and I think at that time, to be perfectly honest, I haven't really said it that much to people, but I wasn't doing that well. And I think if you're not doing that well somewhere, by definition, if you're not enjoying yourself, it means you're not doing that well yes. either. It just, you know it's what I mean? Coming it, it's somehow. coming out. You don't think somehow. it's coming out. That's yeah. the thing. Yeah. You're not fooling anyone if you're not enjoying yeah. yourself. It's just, you know what I mean? Yeah. At, at exactly. I remember having this appraisal and for the first time, you know, I wasn't a star there. And you know what I mean? I just kind of, I was lagging behind and I could see and that was, and I think I stayed for, for a couple of months more. Um, and then I just thought, actually, do you know what? I'm just, I'm just going to leave. And I kept actually at that time, trying to get an in-house job because I thought that might be a solution if I go in-house. And, and of course, I did interview after interview and I sort of was with headhunters and I just wasn't getting any jobs. Rejection after rejection is law from staying there thinking miserable. And then finally, after Christmas, I sort of said to my mum and my brother and I was like, actually, I, you know, I just can't do this. And I'd never taken a gap year. And I just thought, I'm just going to leave because that's the only way. I, um, and then literally, I remember thinking, uh, so my brother Bobby at the time was working as, as an investment banker in New York. And Bobby's like three and a half years older than me. And I just remember thinking, let me just go to New York. Like that will give me a bit of a better perspective or whatever. And I just remember... I just woke up that first morning with jet lag, you know, go up Madison Avenue thinking, let me get a cup of coffee. And I walked into this place called New World Coffee. And I just loved it. I just loved New World Coffee. New World, it was called. Yeah. And it was on Madison Avenue by Grand Central Station. And, you know, I just remembered the smell of coffee, the buzz of the place. They had stuff about coffee on the walls. I remember I went to order my drink and I just couldn't even look at the menu because I was so transfixed by these muffins they had. And I'm obsessed with that sort of thing. So, and then I'd never seen biscottis. I fell off with these biscotti yeah. jars. I just thought this is most, I'm going to like carrot cakes galore. And then I just remember I said, like, they were like, what would you like to drink? And um, I said, can I have a cappuccino, please? And the guy was like, yeah, sure. Do you want it with full fat milk, skim milk, semi-skim milk, soy milk? Even though you had soy milk at that time. And I just couldn't believe it. I was like, what? Like, what did what you say? Like three sizes? And and then I got my, I'm always on some sort of a diet. So I got my sort of skinny cappuccino. And then I remember going there and seeing, like, they had different um, toppings to put on, different powders. So there was like cinnamon powder, vanilla powder. This is amazing. And I'd never seen these cups before that were like, not like the polystyrene cups we'd seen. And and I just fell in love with it. But, you know, I very much fell in love with it the way you do. You know, I would say like, I don't know if I go to France, I might eat like pan chocolates every morning. Doesn't mean like it's a great mm. business idea. Mm. I mean, and mm. I just, but I loved it. I just would go there every morning when I was in New York um, and have my coffee fix at New World Coffee. And just love the cups and just the whole atmosphere. And I just remember I came back to London and um, I'd just gone to a headhunter's drinks, which again, sort of tawdry affairs. And I remember my mum and my brother picking me up from the headhunter's drinks. And just, I said to my brother, God, you know what? Like, I'm not used to not working, being back home and not working. I just wish we had those New York style coffee bars. There was this thing called New World Coffee. I can't tell you how amazing it was. Like, it would be, if we had it in London, I'd just go there every morning and start my morning like that because I haven't got an office to go to. And um, there and then my brother got the light bulb and, you know, entrepreneurs get light bulbs. And he was like, I can't believe you've said this. I think this is it. And I was like, what do you mean this is it? He's like, well, I've been looking for a business idea all my life. This is it. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, when I was at Lehman, someone put the perspective of Starbucks on my desk. And I was like, Starbucks, like, what the hell's that? I've got a name, is that? Like, what do you say? <laughs> and he's like, well, Starbucks is a coffee company in Seattle. They say it's going to be really big. 
And this is it. Before Starbucks come, you and I should be the ones to bring the UK version here. This is it. And my reaction was literally, I swear to God, I was absolutely horrified at this dinner because I was thinking... I was actually insulted because, number one, I was like a lawyer. So why yeah. would I go and open well, a coffee a bar? Like kind of yeah. driving when I've been highly trained. So th- apart from the insult, I was like, actually, you got me completely wrong. I meant why doesn't someone else go to it? You know, like, yes. so someone else yes. opened it for me to go yes. to it. Because for me, like I was in the land of the consumer and I just wished for things that like a whole other world produced on the high As street. As you said, you hadn't dreamt of being an entrepreneur. That's the thing. It's just like kind of, and I, just, I literally couldn't understand why I had to provide a solution to my own problem. Like, I really, I just really just was having none of it. And then he said, well, um, okay, if you don't want to do it, that's fine. But I think this is amazing. So what if I, what if I paid you to do some research? And literally, I reached to carry out checkbooks. I got a check from him there and then, just because he wanted me to do research for his idea. And the next morning, bought myself a one-day tube pass, and I spent the entire day on the circle line just pretending as if I worked in each any of these stops and sort of went up the escalator. And there was there was nothing like it. And that night I got home and I was like, God, maybe you're right. Maybe there's nothing like like it. And that's that that's it. That that is when the entrepreneur was born. That was when and did you go back and then research the the American vibe. There's a story, isn't there, that you went in with your disposable camera. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Did- because yeah, because I mean, when we, you know, we had the idea, starting to write the business plan. Of course, nowadays we forget. That in two minutes, I could have gone there and downloaded every single image. You know what I mean? Yes. Training manuals, yes. the whole lot. Yes. And we forget. We just couldn't yes. do that. Back yes, then. of course not. So I had to go back to New York because, of course, you know, when I was in New York, I had no intention of doing yeah. that yeah. and take pictures. So literally, yeah. I was taking pictures of my disposable camera and being thrown out, and then having my cousins in there pretending as if we were innocent. New York tourists taking pictures so that's how I kind of got and I've still actually got the album actually I should have bought the album yeah You've I've still, still got, got the album, album yeah the pictures yeah it's amazing of people pretending amazing. to drink coffees yeah. and uh, yeah. and how did you come up with the name I know a lot of small businesses struggle with that first step I interviewed Julie Dean on this podcast the founder of the Cambridge Satchel Company and she gave herself half an hour to come up with the name and the logo and then she just decided she needed to just crack on yeah. you know no research no you know no companies hired and things like that what was your approach in creating that brand and um, well we knew it was going to be a, it had to be a great name because you know you really are on the high street in this yeah. and you know we were like oh my god you're going to be next to you know big names like Marks and Spencers and you know Gap at that time was huge you know just things like that orange I remember I had children and I remember we just couldn't come up with the right name and we actually had this name Java Express that we wrote the business plan from and we even raised money calling it Java Express and I hated that kind of thought what a stupid name Java Express and I remember um, we were about to register the company and there was an extra charge for a change of name so we didn't want to pay that because obviously as an entrepreneur yes, you know you, you you're money, on very yes. no money so it's just so we did that extra it was literally 40 pounds extra and we just didn't want to pay that later on so we thought we've got to find the name and i remember we actually went to the city business library both bob and i and we opened up because in city business library they have all the white pages of these american sort of states thinking maybe we'll get some inspiration like under restaurants and cafes oh, amazing. nothing you know what i mean i thought like something but yes, literally we just both out. had them yeah. open at the city business library like tombs and tombs of these like kind of phone books nothing came up and i remember we were right by south ken driving back and i said you know it's got to be all about coffee like coffee world coffee country enter coffee world enter coffee republic and then my brother was like oh my god that's it and then, then God, I'm yeah, so my mom was called. Car. Yeah, literally, my mom was called. She was like, "That's it," and you just know that's it. Yeah, Which is funny enough. In my book, it. I've got 
the aha name. Like, yeah. you just know something's not right and you know when something's right. And you've got to call that for the right name, but you just got to keep banging yeah. at that bloody door. And could you talk about opening your first shop? Because it was in South Moulton Street and it was 1995, before smartphones, before social media, before Starbucks, Costa, Nero. Could you tell us about that experience of opening the first coffee republic and the first coffee shop really in britain well i i I don't know if i've spoken to someone so it's a monumental shift in in societal congregating and socializing gosh i mean it sounds like fairy tale like when you say it no i know like when you're in there it's like i might just remember it was a hot summer we weren't finding any sites and we'd already got this bank loan and the guy was like why aren't we finding any sites and eventually a friend of ours knew a t-shirt business that was going out of business and he said listen the guy needs to get rid of his lease and so just again you know word of mouth got that thank god you know just the right moment you know that's the thing when you put you put it out there into the yeah, universe, the universe you know whatever someone answers someone said listen there's a site and we knew south Moulton street was great because you had shoppers you had office you had students do you know what I mean? it was all sort of it was all we just knew that yeah. enough catchment i mean i remember at night when when the shop fitters were in just terrified thinking what is this and no one knew what it was and there was just this idea that Literally at that time, you know, there was no internet. So it was only pictures I'd taken from America. And my own experience of what I liked as a customer. I remember actually, and the worst thing, Holly, was like ordering the night before for like, what do you order? Like, so I'd never, you know, been in the restaurant business or anything. So yeah. I was like, okay, so how many pints of milk does the milkman bring? Like, how much should we get? I just can't tell you how, what a night, man. We actually, the first day, end up running out of milk. And the closest um, place that sold yeah. milk was Selfridges. So I just remember literally... Oh, the most yeah, expensive milk you imagine, ever. Sending a friend of mine, like, to Selfridges <laughs> to buy milk. Because thinking, oh my... And yeah, and then we say I have some sort of special milk that we had to buy because we ran out of milk halfway through. And it was just terrifying. I just remember, I, I remember, you know, we got, like, no one baked muffins at that time I mean the only muffins you got were those sort of horrible raisin ones like that sandwich bars had the, the yellow ones and so I got this woman to bake muffins at home and then I brought them in myself I got another American woman who I somehow found I don't know how they made biscottis because then they have to be double baked I remember like at one o'clock in the morning she finally had double baked the biscottis I went and picked them up from her house <laughs> and I mean, I mean, real. Yeah. I just can't the real terrified. stuff. The yeah. real stuff. Sleeves yeah. rolled up. People just don't see it. Just, you know, nightmare. Yeah. And then we nicked our first two employees from Pret-a-Manger because um, they were trained and we didn't know how to train people. And it was only we realised when they came for training and they'd actually left Pret-a-Manger, they didn't speak a word of English. So we had, our two employees were beautiful boys, Max and Miguel, but they were Danish language students and didn't speak up English. So, you know, I mean, they were not communicative <laughs> with the customer. I mean, I just can't take, it was just such a night. I and mean, then we were obviously, when we opened the doors, people actually came in and what was extraordinary, you know, our vibes must have been so bad because we were so nervous. Yeah. And it was a tiny store. And so Bobby and I pacing around there, probably giving it bad energy. It was, it was a nightmare. I really, I just kind of remember thinking, oh my God, I just remember much about it. And people were coming in, that was extraordinary. And then people were coming in, not in that way that I was, my business plan said they were coming in, as in they were going to come in one by one and I was going to show them around. No, they just suddenly come in and then they yes. don't come in and kids come in and they start crying on the floor and it's <laughs> chaos. And you know what I mean, it was just, it was extraordinary. <laughs> and, and one of the biggest factors stopping small businesses and entrepreneurs from starting is this lack of investment, isn't it? Or not knowing how to get funding. And over 65% of people use their own savings to start out. But there are many more ways now obviously, yeah. of getting hold of, of, of capital. And I just want to share these stories on this podcast of how people started up those beginning stages. You know, 
I at Holly & Co are still going through that. We're two years in. You know, it doesn't stop. However mm-hmm. many times you've done it, it, you know, starting a business is a precarious and difficult thing to navigate. It's a living thing, isn't it? You can't, you can't tell exactly where it's going to go or how do you get it moving forward. Could you tell the story of how you got your investment for Coffee Republic? In the business plan, we, we calculated we needed to raise 95 grand because we had to take a, a lease and we had no covenant because we'd never taken leases before so yes. landlords didn't know us we had to pay one year's rent up front oh, so gosh. that was 35,000 a year and then the rest was you know buying shop fitting buying equipment yes. and then we left a bit of working capital so that came to 95 and of course I thought well this is the easy bit because my brother was a banker right so he was yeah. an investment banker and he was telling me about the billion dollar deals and yeah he just surely just picks up the chiquita phone, right? banana exactly so I was literally like can you just pick up the phone and yeah, that's all we need just to sort that out like we'll be done of course he had no idea no idea how to raise 90 grand none of his friends did either and I literally remember we went to Waterstones together and Waterstones had a really small small business section to the point that now when I go to bookshops and I see the business section how enormous it is that time it was actually on the floor it was like at the lowest shelf um, but there was this one book called the Lloyds Bank TSB How to Start a Small Business Guide by Sarah Williams and as a whole chapter was how to raise money and there was a surprising answer go to a bank and we thought oh go to a bank you know as simple as that and I remember I kind of thought well if it means go to a bank then I'll call my own bank manager and then of course I had like a collection of overdrafts so he was not the perfect person so then we just ended up calling random bank managers again literally open up the yellow pages and call bank managers if they would answer perfect if not just couldn't be able to leave a message we called the next bank manager and just the sum total is we called up 40 Got interviews with 20. The first 19 said to us, no way, Coffee Buzz will never work in this country. Because yeah. their, their premise was that we're nature tea drinkers. So like, who's crazy enough to bring coffee to nature tea drinkers? And I remember the other thing they said was that these fancy coffee names like half-calf, decaf and stuff, English people would never. They're so American and kind of. Um, <laughs> and then the 20th bank manager, um, bless him, the most unlikely bank manager called Mr. Lindop. He gave us a loan and I have no idea why. And, I always say from that um, west wasn't it? from that west yes. exactly and kind of um, and we actually tried to interview him when my book came out to see why because I really wanted to see like what, what was about him and apparently he was retired and retired bank managers want to have nothing to do with their customers so the only oh. rationale I've got is I think this poor Mr Lindop must have had some sort of loan quota like you yeah. know he hadn't given enough yeah, loans right. and so we had actually just gone to it like wasn't your Yes, no. you're not thinking it's because you blew him away. It's no, 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 I just think he probably had yeah. to give a loan. He was like, oh my God, well, you know, I'm just going to give a loan to these people. Because <laughs> I'm sure, because sure, he just didn't he seem knew. like he had a cup he of coffee I mean, in his life. So, but you get, you know, eventually, as you say yourself, you know, and I just, just to say, I'm quite proud of the 40 rejections until you read um, Howard Schultz, Starbucks, pour your heart into it. He got 279 rejections. So imagine going to 279 bank managers who saying, I mean, just, I mean, can you imagine the sheer numbers of that? You know, we always think it's just us getting the no and, you know, poor me and I can't believe it and this must be a dreadful idea. And just realising that greatness comes from, from, from the no's. I just you know? couldn't agree yeah. more. I think such a lesson, I think anyone listening now is... It's getting no's is part and parcel of being successful. And all of those rejections will mean success. Absolutely. And it's those people, as you said, I mean, 279 rejections. I definitely, I'm sure, Holly, you like me, I've almost, that's why I kind of call it notching up on those. I mean, the more no's I get somehow in life, I just know I'm... You're onto something. Yeah, it's almost like running or, like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like yeah. exercise, you know what I mean? It's just, you're preparing for well, the big one. Pip Jameson from The Dot, she, I remember she said something like, 
she's actually a bit addicted to that bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so when the real, you know, shit hits the fan or the nose are coming in thick and fast, she's like, okay, bring it on. Yeah. This is when she's coming alive because she's like, yeah. right, yeah. you keep putting a door in front of me and I'm going to slam the door yeah. open somehow. Yeah. So you did it. You opened that first shop and then you began to grow and you grew from one coffee shop to 110 coffee shops in five years. I mean, I can't even comprehend that because growing not in the high street or Holly & Co, where I have my lonely little coffee shop at the front of our thing, the thought of even doing one more, now 10 more, I'm, ha- I'm having kittens. So 110. Tell me what the process was like in scaling. Um, the process was actually very bit by bit. That's why I always say, you know, kind of, yeah. you can't wait. So we had one and then the following year we opened one more. So it took one year to go to the second one. Then very soon so after going we had well. two. So that first one. Oh, no, well, basically, no, no one came in at the beginning. Our break-even sales were £700 a day. And every single day, 200 pounds of coffee sales. I and mean, that okay. is not many coffee sales to sell 200. Especially my poor mum and her friends were coming in drinking as many oh, cappuccinos. Yeah, just yeah, like, yeah, she became you know a I coffee mean? addict. I mean, she would have like five cappuccinos a day just to kind of make it all look better. So we just feel a bit <laughs> of respite. in the actual yeah. shop. And, um, and no one came in. And it was really only by April, I remember, the weather was getting a bit nice. So you know how it is. You just feel yeah. everyone's getting out. And we had ice drinks. And no one knew that they could have iced drinks mm-hmm. in, in, in the UK. And I remember actually getting, you know, literally Max and Miguel, our first two employees, pulling these little teeny ice drinks so people can say you can have coffee, but, you know, it doesn't have to be hot sort of thing. And that was just really the turning point, I think, that sort of nice weather. And very, very slowly, um, sales started creeping towards break-even. So, so that's what so we waited. And that's why a year later, one more. And I always remember when we had two stores, the other one was quite close to this one. It was in Great Marlborough Street. I remember thinking, oh my God, like I've got a big chain now. You know, which one do I go to of my sort of chain of two, Your you empire. know, lost for choice, like kind of where I get my coffee. And then suddenly we went to the third year, we went to six because, you know, we just, you know, we, we set the sort of foundation, then 30. And at the end of the 30 year, which is end of 99, Starbucks came to the King's Road, terrifying their first store. Then from 30, 60, 80, and 100. So it was just, you know what I mean? It's just, it's very much, you can only do growth like that. You can never, um, we did it, but, you know, with with hindsight, perhaps we grew um, too fast. But then again, people always needed one on every street corner. You know, we just knew that. that It's always the nature of the business. You weren't going to walk more than 10 minutes to your nearest coffee shop. And I loved what you said, that it takes 15 years to become an overnight success. And I just couldn't agree more. I think we're taught that success is quite instant, but it's the foundations have to be strong. They have to be stable before almost the fame can come. And and let's hope it goes that way around, because if fame comes before you're stable, it's it's an absolute disaster. And you have to get the business model right. And you have to have the failures and the trials and the errors before you're on this platform that you can start to scale do you agree yes absolutely which is again i think going back to what we're talking about notching up our nose it's yes. the nose it's that hardship you know i mean i was brought up with my parents used to say something that if it was so easy everyone would be doing it it's the hard that makes us so great so i've always known that you know it the in the hard is greatness in, in the, the hard, hard is, is greatness and i just for me easy is just it's meaningless 
you know, it's like going to the casino. It just, it just doesn't happen. And it's so interesting because I think we all think maybe of starting a business and and then this is going to happen. And, you know, it's like that optimistic puppy, you know, yeah. at the beginning of like, and then this is going to happen. And guess what? It's going to so work and it's going to roll in with the money and all these things. And you're like, oh, bless. Yes. And that was me as well. But actually the knocks, the scrapes, the scars, the war wounds, all of yes. those things builds this thicker skin. The, the difficulty brings out the genius, doesn't it? Exactly. And it's, it, and it's actually why when you know someone's gone through maybe a startup and it hasn't worked, why they're in great employees as well. You know, yeah. it's because yeah. they truly have tasted what it's like to build. And I think, because I'm sure you're the same, it's kind of in a way if you're too attached to the outcome. You know, it's that kind mm. of don't be attached to the fruit of the outcome, you know, which is why, you know, a big tenet of entrepreneurship is don't don't look for making money, you know what I mean, for, for the money bit. It's not about that. You've got to actually love what you do. You've got to love the yes. product. You've got to love serving yes. the customer. The money is, is a great dessert that comes at the end, but, you know, you, you must do it for the for everything journey else. itself. Are you listening to Sahar's incredible journey, thinking, I wish I could do that, but don't quite know where to start? Then I wrote a book for you. Do What You Love, Love What You Do is the ultimate small business Bible, providing you with the guidance, support and insights I wish I'd had 20 years ago at the start of building my business journey with Not On The High Street. Think of me as your virtual mentor, guiding you along your journey as if I was sitting right next to you, holding your hand, recounting my own fears and failures, lessons to help you succeed on your path. Short bite-sized micro chapters filled with colour, creativity, oh, and its own product range. It really is a business book like no other. Do What You Love, Love What You Do is out now. Head to holly.co slash book to buy your signed copy today. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. What I wanted to talk more about and ask your advice and opinion on scaling, as I read that in the UK, we rank the third best for startups, but only the 13th for the number of businesses which scale up successfully. What do you think we can do to help improve this number? And what is holding us back? I think, as you know, you know, scaling a business requires many different skills, many different talents. It, and I think... And I'm sure when you started on the high street, again, you know, you, no one ever gave support to entrepreneurs. You know, this word startup wasn't a word bandied around. And now Nor generally, entrepreneur, really. yeah, we're yeah. like a startup nation, aren't we? I mean, yeah. that's why we have so many businesses starting up every year. You know, the, the rate is extraordinary. I think it's just sort of six, seven hundred thousand that kind of start every year. So we, we've done that well. So because I think there is a lot of support out there. So that little bit of support is, is, is crucial. And I think we focused a lot on startups and, and not enough on scale-ups. And scale-ups are people who've already, you know, they, the plane's taken off and they mm -hmm. just need tiny little nudges, mm -hmm. you know, little help maybe in leadership training, mm -hmm. in succession planning, in mm -hmm. finance, in export. So I think that's, that's where is the low-hanging fruit really for the government. And we've mm. got to support people to do that mm. to continue growing because as, as you know you know business can never stand still yes if you're not growing unfortunately yes, absolutely um, yeah. it's that thing which is i always call it the red button you know it's all lovely you start up etc etc and then how many times do you just want to press an emergency button yeah. which is what do i do now 
You know, how do I employ that first person? How do I lose that person? How do I employ a team? I need to deal with raising proper money or is that the right thing for me? Absolutely, because this this sort of baby you've brought into the world has yes. become, you know what I mean? Not a toddler was easy, and then it becomes a sort of adolescent, and how you deal with that. And you scaled to 110 coffee shops, and you said you felt there was a culture change. Mm-hmm. So you started this, and sorry, you didn't just start one; you started 110. So probably knew a few things. But it changes, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And things change. Tell me about what changed. Um, yeah, so what changed is very interesting. At the beginning, the people we had were, you know, they didn't have great CVs. They were just great people that sort of somehow believed in us as the founders. Yeah. So, you know, the culture was very much Bobby and I were the culture. And then they were the same culture because we were very close. We worked from home, like at my kind of mum's home, which was a real shock, um, you know, kind of moving back home when you start. And then we moved into this. We got the end of this wonderful lease in an office in Albemarle Street. So we were like up there, gorgeous kind of little attic we had. And we just had this amazing team. I just remember we had this wonderful receptionist and she was so sort of creative that she actually got interested in all the property. So she, you know, moved to property. I mean, people just yes, were com- yes, you know, agile, yes. moving to the area they enjoyed you know then with the other receptionist was really great at marketing so yeah. it was helped me on that you know what I mean everyone just very raw everyone moved. you're everyone, looking at people's talents just coming through coming through yeah. and everyone you know in a way there is such a force in entrepreneurial business I think that you know you're so you know they're just like almost like a slipstream that everyone goes into it and and but you know the people you attract they're there because somehow they believed in you because yeah. you haven't offered them a great security you can't give any perks you know you're not paying that much so there's something in their heart that believes in you and believes in the business. And often they like their business. You know, I always say, you know, we were our own customers and a lot of people we hired were also their own customers. So for example, we had a pet store scheme. So every morning someone had their pet store because we couldn't afford, you know, um, uh, the, the mystery customers, you know, surveys and things. So everyone would go to their pet store every morning and report back. And it was just so wonderful. And everyone was with us, you know, when we opened the store, they were there at night, you know, putting the poster yes, up and, you yes. know, packing the shelves before we opened. Yeah. And then suddenly we got, you know, a bit more famous. And at that point, we actually kind of went public, which is a whole different thing. But, you know, people got to know about, you know, Coffee. We we did a lot of PR, so we were getting a lot of press. So people were like, oh, this is a sexy business to join. And people with better CVs were coming. But when people with better CVs with more egos and more experience were coming, they started changing the culture slowly. Because, you know, I remember when we hired someone from Nestle, that was for me the ultimate. You know, I can't believe someone from Nestle wants to come work here. But all he did was tell us how... They couldn't do this at Nestle and they, you know, they tried that. And, you know, it just, it was a complete change of culture. And God, I speak to every single founder who has this problem because people really struggle with that. And the feeling we had back then, Holly, was that actually you're doing the right thing because you're just entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurs only mean one thing, starting a business. And, you know, almost give it to the grown-ups, people with experience, people in this area, people who really know, people who know about systems and processes and... And I just remember we got someone, I remember, um, to do purchasing instead of me just thinking off the cuff, like I want to buy something. And this person, she put systems and controls and we thought that's really good because you need systems and controls. But I could just suddenly see what was happening. I remember actually the founders of Innocent came over, those three guys. They came over with these drinks saying, can you please stock these? And I was like, sounds great. I like them. And then I remember the purchasing person was like, actually, you know, they haven't got proper 
you know, documentation and stuff like that. And, you know, we just can't, like, they, you know, they just won't be yeah. able to fill in the... F- and I was like, what do you mean? Like, they, didn't, it was, they didn't fill the forms in properly. Yeah. Whereas it's just like they had no idea. There was three guys with an idea. And I just remember, like, just thinking, oh, my God, it's so... Far. And I just... And the more frustrated I felt, the more alienated I started feeling for my own company. And that happens a lot with entrepreneurs. But I felt very alone, very much in the corner. And I remember it was actually a leaving party for our finance um, director. And he'd been with us since from the beginning. And I remember when he left, he was like the first of the old guard. And I just remember actually sobbing hysterically. And I just didn't know why, Mm. because I just knew that that feeling had left, that original team. You know, so everything changed. I remember I would complain from a store and then they'd be like, actually, no, um, don't just call like that because you're in charge of marketing and you just have to wait until we have the weekly meeting whereby can put it in the agenda and I was like the stool's dirty like how can I put that in the future so you know typical frustrations I think that you know every single founder feels I think a business as they grow it is it was again chatting to Julie Dean she described it as a moment when they hired all the chiefs oh really amazing well done with the titles you know and from my experiences when you feel you know actually the imposter syndrome as an entrepreneurial founder you haven't had the MBA background you haven't been a chosen CEO you haven't had the CEO lessons and and you've had this brilliant idea but someone comes in and tells you that you don't have the experience let's say of scaling or running big business or corporate business so you go against your gut really and you hire people with these great cvs what are we told you know hire people that are better than you greater than you do not feel intimidated by that but actually you're ticking boxes and the point is is that that gut instinct is 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 the red alerts are going on and I've spoken to so many founders on this podcast as Julie said you know the chiefs are in and it's something that I've heard just so many people now talk about it and I want it to stop if you're a founder of your business no one is better equipped to run the business that you gave birth to and I've heard you talk about the similar experience that when you brought those people in that that's that's what you felt tell me about how that manifested itself um well it manifests itself just in this way that I felt very alienated from from the office but it was I think the feeling they gave me and I you know I can't speak enough to female founders especially of you know really believing in themselves because you then you stop believing in yourself um, well they the, must be right they must be and also the feeling was slightly like you know almost a tap on the head like well done little girl you, you started a business, good for you, so you had a little passion. But, you know, this whole passion thing, there's no room for it now because we're a big company now and we're just like, we're the big boys and we got to act big. And passion and stuff like that, like really cute mm. for the mm. beginning, but not mm. now. And they, I really stopped believing in myself. I stopped believing mm. in the power. And Anita Roddick, actually, she once said to me the most wonderful thing. She said, actually, no one realises that as a founder, you have an umbilical cord to your business. And it's that umbilical cord. You know, and it's just like, and I wish actually Anita Roddick, she was still with us because oh, so in this world where we share, so you know, she I. died before we started sharing the way we do. She would and, have and, given so much. And she so was before much. us all. Yeah, she was, she was doing all us. of yeah. this, wasn't she? Building and business so for good and she was just, oh, I remember, wow. I remember just being so upset and she was like, "It's someone's cut your umbilical cord. That's what they've done, you know, from something you loved. And What's extraordinary about it is that you know, and I could see, you know, Coffee Republic since we left, has, it took eight years for the company to go into administration. I can't even bear to go. It's because, you know, how it is we cut, we cut that because we thought the whole passion thing was for the beginning. And, you know, I, I just, I stopped believing in myself, really. And it was only, you know, I then left and wrote my book, Anyone Could Do It. But then when I started thinking about it, it was actually like, actually, do you know what? 
we knew exactly what we were doing. And that was, you know, yeah, you've got to get people to come along and compliment you. But if someone doesn't realize how important the founder is, and if someone is stupid enough not to use that gut instinct, the nous of a founder by their side, then that is not the right person in the company. You know, anyone who discounts the value of a founder in an organization, I, th I, th I think is, is just not worth it. And I believe in this so strongly, which is why is this recent book I've written, Startup Forever, about keeping the startup forever, which is why I called it that, that every company should be a startup forever. Startup is not a phase you grow out of. It's mm. a phase you keep. And a startup obviously needs the person that started mm. it up. Yeah. And the entrepreneurial spirit. It's, I mean, it's critical. This world of innovation, I mean, my kind of day job is helping big companies bring back the entrepreneurial spirit. And so a company that is closer to a spirit, you know what I mean? It's so difficult to refabricate that. But when you've got it through the founder, then that is the value. And I just want every founder listening to this to realize how much they know and never, ever not to believe in themselves and let anyone tell them that they don't know. I really want to focus on women starting up their dreams and starting up their businesses. And the main reason for this disparity is the lack of confidence, this imposter syndrome. What advice would you give to women thinking about actually taking that leap of faith? Well, I mean, you know, one of my big mottos in life is um, leap and the net will appear. And I think the worst place to be is, you know, at the edge of the cliff looking down. Should I, should I not? It's just like, it's just like a torturous yes. place to be. And so my advice is just sometimes you just got to, got to jump. You just got to go for it and not think too much. And I think with women, a lot of the women I come across in the whole sort of, you know, entrepreneur world we're in, you know, they, they ask other people. I find, I think women often ask their partners and their partners somehow to protect them from disappointment. Say, actually, don't bother starting a business. You can't because, you know, and I think I always say, actually, you your partner, your husband is the worst person to ask about that sort of thing. Because for some reason, I've, I've met very few women, I have to say, who've had the husband being the one to push them into it. Yes. Because they just want to sort of, I yes, think, protect yes. you. And if it's risky, yes. it's just, just not the way men work, I think. So I always say, don't ask, your, you know, don't ask advice from your partner. Just go with your gut. You know, the female gut, you know, it's extraordinary what we have within us. And for me, entrepreneurship is really just using the qualities we use in other bits of our life in business. And once people realize it's just it, because women are using all these different qualities of empathy, intuition, resourcefulness. Women are so resourceful. The multitasking, be able to do a zillion things at the same time. These are all stuff you do anyway. And imagine if you applied that to a business, how successful that business would be. And that's what I learned about entrepreneurship. It's actually the easiest, most human thing in the world to do. It's just because we do it every day anyway. You're doing it when you're making your child's birthday party. You're doing it in everyday life. You're just applying it in business. But why do you think then, because I've never heard anyone describe it so bloody brilliantly, so thank you. But why do you think then that women then don't think like that? What is it about the B word, the business word? What is it that we think that we're going to fail instantly because we don't know what EBITDA is? We can do 20 things at once, yeah, and be great parents I'll, and mothers. I'll, I'll tell you, yeah. What is it then? Um, it's one thing, only one thing, fear. I think as women, we have all these qualities, right? Again, I said empathy, curiosity, resourcefulness, intuition. We're consumers naturally. Our natural enthusiasm towards the consumer makes us great entrepreneurs. But there's one thing that works against us is fear. 
And where that fear comes from is actually part of the multitasking. Because between the two lobes of our brain, the reason we can multitask is there are like lots of tiny wires going between, between, you know, between the right brain, the left brain, the logical and the creative side. So, so constantly we can kind of, these are synapses yeah. are going yeah. and we're connecting, we do a zillion things. But men have just like one cable going from one side to the other. You know what I mean? So they have very, it's very one track. But because of all these synapses, we're very, we have a lot of voice in our head. We've got a lot of noise in our head. And, and that becomes it's the consequence, this, isn't the it? Con- of having, yeah, of, of having, having that, having exactly. The great stuff, you've also got the you, you've not got so great that. stuff. Yeah. yeah, it's like the bigger the front, the bigger the back. You know what I mean? So the more stuff you pick up about how you can't do it, and the more you doubt yourself, and then the more you're having these internal, these, this sort of literary conversation that if I think if we talked out loud what goes on in our heads, we'd sort of be labeled mad, all of us. But it's that bit, and we can't stop that. I mean, we pick up these signals, and then we act, and we've just got to, you know, for me, just a solution, just got to press the delete button on it, just bloody press delete on that noisy female mind and just go for it. You've just got to take the leap. And men are lucky because they just, you know, they, I see with my husband, he doesn't pick up a conversation next door. He's like, you were just talking to me. How did you know what they said at the table next door? I'm like, I'm a woman. That's what we do. Yeah. We pick up everything. Yeah. But because they don't pick it up, it's wonderful. It's less yes. noisy yes. in their heads. Yes. So Gosh. for me, it's just press delete and just jump because when you jump, something will happen. Wonderful. But what is awful is looking at that cliff edge, you know, white knuckles, you're seeing getting the All oxygen. The oh, just, you know what I mean? Every scenario. It's a terrifying place to be. Whereas once you jump, it's liberation in a way. Jumping, leaping is liberation for the female mind. Mm. And every time I don't do that, you know, once I, every, and I leapt many times and I've got a leap in the net will appear above my office at home. You know, I've left many times and it's the joy is in that leaping out of your comfort zone and mm. you see how great you are, how wonderful you are. And touching just lastly on Coffee Republic, before we talk about your other incredible endeavours, you sold your shares in the business at the peak of the dot-com boom and Coffee Republic was turning over 30 million, I think. And it was just this huge success. But the next day after leaving, you didn't necessarily feel that way. Could you tell me the story about that? I know you went to tea with your mum was it yeah no no exactly we were I just remember it was meant to be this great thing you know you sell yeah I can imagine just jubilation and you got money in your bank account and you never have to work again you know aged I think 30 and I just remember it literally the next day actually and I was walking around where I lived and I just remember like seeing like lots of like people not working you know what I mean it was just this world of people not working and lots of the area I lived and then I was like oh my god I don't, this is not me I can't do this and I just remember literally this sort of dread came over me that is if is, this is the rest of my life and then I also desperately missed Coffee Republic I just remember again that same night went to dinner with a friend we went past Coffee Republic on High Street Kensington and I said to him oh my god look at Coffee Republic and he said to me don't look at it it's got nothing to do with you anymore and I remember when he said, don't look at it, it's got nothing to do with you anymore. It was like a stab in the back because I loved it. It was, it was everything. Well, the umbilical cord. It was cord, this, yeah. it was the umbilical cord. It was my creative outlet. It was every single thing in that store we had built with blood, sweat and tears, with love, with passion. And to suddenly have nothing to do with it, what a huge mistake. You know, it takes you two minutes to, to sell something, you know, just sign on dotted line, that's it. But, you know, how long it takes you to build it and how much it gives you. And it was just absolutely devastating. A huge grief. Grief. I mean, yeah, I mean, I've now read a lot about it and it's very much like a bereavement. There was huge grief. It was just this like literally gaping hole inside of me. 
and that was mm. a Cover Republic. I don't think we talk about this at all. It's not a known thing. You know, yeah, we talk yeah, about, yeah, don't absolutely. we, the sale and the, they exited and they did this and they did that. The other side of all of that, and a lot of people won't be able to talk about it, but absolute grief. Yeah. Thank God on someone's suggestion, actually, um, Julie Mayer said, you know, write a book. And I was like, I can't write a book. But forcing me to sort of almost write the book, anyone could do it, was a very cathartic experience yes. of going through what happened. And I missed it tremendously. It took me a long time to get, get over it. Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was just it was just absolute. It's so easy to sell. And yet you just you destroy something you've built. Someone said to me once when I left the running of the day-to-day of Norton High Street, you only get one success in life and no one has, you know, a second successful business. And I remember really thinking about this and taking it to heart and believing that that was true. And it was debilitating because, you know, that's it. That's that, you know, not again. But now I know for sure that if you're one of those people that is, you know, driven, you're passionate about something, you'll always be successful you'll you'll find that way whatever that business outlet is Mm -hmm. there's something that's in you that's continuous that's constant and that can never be taken you know funny if I was telling someone who's about to sell their business last night I was sitting next to her and I said you know of course had I kept Coffee Republic I would have now still been you know the sort of marketing director or whatever Coffee Republic and I would never had written a book I've never thought I could write a book I would have never started speaking. And when I speak, I you know go to different companies. It's a whole new skill I've learned. Um, getting involved, having time for other businesses. So absolutely, I would have never gone on this journey. So sometimes maybe, you know, we make these mistakes, but, but we're meant to make them in a way. So yeah, but that still doesn't take away the pain of how much I love that company. Yeah, and, I, yeah. I look at it like books, you know, so if on one page is your experience and your pain. And if you turn the page, you don't, delete what's written on that those pages it's just right. new pages absolutely as right. you said it's opened new opportunities something i want to talk to you about is entrepreneurship you like me believe that everyone can be an entrepreneur i know for sure that out of all the incredible entrepreneurial small businesses that i work with not a single one of them would describe themselves though as an entrepreneur And you wrote the book, Encouraging People to Start. Could you talk about this and maybe give people the confidence to call themselves an entrepreneur? Um, Yeah, well, I mean, I I wrote, I called it Anyone Could Do It because I never thought I was an entrepreneur. I mean, at that time, no one ever used that word. But I think genuinely, which is why I believe, you know, anyone could do it is turning an idea into reality that journey makes you an entrepreneur, which is why, for example, when you and I met, we hit it off because not because we had a similar background in a way or we're similar characteristics. We both have done that journey. It's all Mm. the same. That passion, that drive, that journey is what every single entrepreneur shares. And I think we've all got it in us. And as soon as anyone takes that leap and embarks on that journey, they become an entrepreneur. Absolutely. For anyone listening who feels like they do want to start something but might not have the idea, what advice would you give? I'm really big on this unmet need, you see, because I think they say if the consumer economy had a sex, it would be female. So we are, you know, we make the majority of purchasing decisions. We're great shoppers. So for me, in a funny way, I actually kind of always say that qualities that used to make us the butt of jokes, like we're shopaholics, actually are reasons why we make great entrepreneurs. Because the fact that we're shopaholics means we've really got our finger on the pulse as to what's going on. You yes. know what I mean? It's just to yes. me know, you know what I mean? We know what's out there. We're interested. 
but therefore, because of that, we know where the gaps are. So for me, it's this personal unmet need, you know, scratching your own itch. If you can't find something for yourself, that is the genesis of a great business idea. And, you know, just give yourself that confidence because, you know, if you're missing it, most likely other people will as well. If you can't find it, there you go, bang, an absolutely brilliant idea. So just keep asking, you know, I think something which I really believe in is when we want something, there's a reason we want it. You know, that desire gets planted in us because it's obviously somewhere in our divine design. So the fact that we want to be an entrepreneur, so just keep asking. Yes. Um, I was actually um, doing an interview for an article I wrote, um, Margot Marone, who actually is someone that I think you should interview, um, who started Organic Pharmacy. Mm, Incredible yes, kind of passion. Yes. She's got, you know, them across the world now. She said, what I love about it, and I've actually written that big, that, so she was a sort of pharmacist, a normal mainstream pharmacy. And she, I sat in the park one day and I said, what is it I should do? And she said, I asked myself this question. I asked the universe. But she said, it wasn't a wishy-washy ask. It was a real ask for the depth of my heart, depth of my soul. And that really resonated with me because sometimes I want things. And I'm like, like Margaret Maroon says, it's not a wishy-washy ask. Just ask and it will come to you. But just ask. Ask with passion. Mm. Don't let your husband tell you, oh, it's a stupid idea. And your friend tells you a stupid idea. And then you read an article and think someone else, three out of four businesses fails. Just, just keep asking. You know, that's, mm. that's why I think I've learned in my years of life. You just keep searching and you'll get there. It's not going to come to you on a plate. No. But you just don't know when, it, yeah. but it will come to you at the right time. How have you balanced your life? 25 years ago, you started this entrepreneurial journey. How have you managed to keep that sanity running through or keep yourself together, your soul together through that journey? Um, gosh, a very good question. Well, funny enough, my sanity used to be my mum. So my mum was like, off my dad, I incredibly close to my mum. And so it was actually, um, I used to be asked who's my mentor and I, be, I have to have, really have a mentor, as you say. So then actually my, my mum died in 2008. And it was only when, when she died, I thought actually she was my mentor. So she was always that yes. sanity. She was always there, always to sort of balanced me, put me on the right track. Um, so since my mum, I've just been slightly kind of rudderless like that. Mm. So I've managed to find my own, how, how, how I keep my sanity. But what was extraordinary is um, I actually didn't get married until I was 41. And people always say that, oh, well, obviously you didn't get married because obviously it's a whole work balance thing, isn't it? I mean, how could you get married when you're a successful entrepreneur <laughs> building 110 stores? And they were like, of course, you know, it makes sense. You know, the whole sort of Bridget Jones kind of, you know, you, you shouldn't have worked. And I remember people saying to me, oh God, you know, um, you haven't found someone because obviously you're too powerful and you intimidate men. Yes. I just remember thinking at that time, like, how could I not intimidate? Like, what, what should I do to like, do I mean, again, you not know, there am I putting myself down yes. when I must meet someone. Just yeah. must be my fault. So actually I'm doing something wrong because I obviously must be intimidating men. I can't imagine. And funny enough, when I met my husband, my soulmate, you know, when I, when I was um, 39, married him when I was 41. But it has nothing to do with the fact that I was a successful businesswoman. It's nothing to do with the fact that I started a business. It just happened to be that I didn't meet the, the man right. I was meant yeah. to marry until I was 41. So and I ended up not having my own children because I got married later. I've got two beautiful stepchildren, but never my own children. So people love to box you in mm -hmm. into, um, you know, did that. Mm -hmm. Therefore, no, it's just, we, you know, whereas, you know, I was, you know, there are other people who've got a football team of children have started businesses. Mm -hmm. You know, what we forget is entrepreneurs come in all shapes and sizes, mm -hmm. all different choices. You just have to look at 
all of us around the UK, yeah. how different we are, yeah. what different journeys we've had. And yeah. no journey is the same. It's just that everyone takes their own journey. A recent business I saw that you were involved with is, is a company called Change Please, which is an example of a business which is a force for good in the world. A trend I'm noticing in business is that slowly it's changing from this sort of greedy, money-hungry era to now creating social change with your business. Could you tell us about Change Please, as it is such a brilliant business? I just, wow. Well, Change Please was, um, I was always, you know, kind of the whole coffee idea, obviously, after that whole experience, I don't want to get anywhere near coffee. I can imagine. You can imagine. And about, I think, three years ago, I was, um, I did a speech for Enterprise Nation um, for Emma Jones, who's amazing. And, you know, an entrepreneur approached me saying, oh, hello, I'm um, Jamal Lezel, and I've got a coffee idea. And I was like, coffee oh. idea, please. Like, I literally rolling my eyes. And he was like, you, you've got to listen to this. Um, I, hi- I train and hire homeless people to be baristas. And I literally was like, oh my God, that's amazing. And I was like, have you actually done it? Because I'm sure, you know, yes. it, the idea one is not enough. One thing to say it. Yeah. yeah, one thing. So he's like, yeah, I've got five sites. You know, I'm just about to go and speak to Microsoft. And then I thought, okay, it may, you know, that seems interesting. And for me, just, you know, we buy coffee every day, you know, for all these big companies and actually to buy it from a homeless. And that just, it just got to my heart. And um, the founders are the most extraordinary guy, um, Jamal Lizzle. He just, he, he really does it because he also fell in love with it. Um, and, and it's the most beautiful business. And I'm just, I just, I love being involved in it. Um, Jeremy, it just it gets me back into a world I love, mm. but with just such a purpose. A and purpose. when you see people's lives changing like that, people being so great, just, is you know what right I mean? Is it that they've got the contract for Virgin Trains? Yes, absolutely, which is incredible. Yeah. I mean, how yeah, fantastic. No, there are so many offices all around London. You know, I mean, they're like kind of from BNY Mellon to UBS to Linklaters. Just name them. They're like, yeah, they're everywhere. And it, it, it's a really, so I'm, just for me, it's just, it's a beautiful concept. I find helping the, the sort of mentor, the CEO who's already done it, just, just a sort of wonderful experience. Yeah. So we're coming to the end of this interview now. And, and I always use this analogy that building a business is like being on this crazy epic roller coaster that whether you want to get off it, or not, you're not getting off it. And so I would love to ask you, what has been one of your biggest lows through that journey of building your business? Um, I think definitely the biggest low was going to a Coffee Republic store after we'd sold it and seeing the the CEO that we had hired on a Sunday kind of go right past the store and not come in. I remember it was a Sunday, we were sitting in the store and we were having a nice coffee and then we saw the CEO come, he lived nearby and he went to the news agent next door and I thought, um, great, well, he's about to come in. So I was getting ready to sort of chat to him, see how I was going. And he got back into his car and he didn't even look inside. And I just remember thinking, I suppose for him it's Sunday and, it, and it's, um, not it's not work day. It's not, why should he look in? It's not a work day. And I thought, oh, my God, this person doesn't love this brand. And we loved it so much. You know, we're there because we thought the coffee was... Yeah. And I just remember that. I remember exactly where I was, sitting in the window. It was funny if it was Bobby and I together. And the guy just drove off in his smart car that he got in the new corporate contract he'd got. And he drove away. And, and, and it was that feeling. And it was every day going back to that store. And, and, and just feeling, and just feeling that things weren't the same and the kind of, yeah, mm. that customer focus, that, that love had gone. And consequently, the, 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 you have the opposite, don't you? So what would you say is the greatest high that you experienced or one of the greatest highs? Oh, well, funny enough, actually, I never thought it would be, it was writing anyone could do it. I wrote it and 
the amount of people who've come to me and said that's inspired them to start a business. I can't tell you. It's just, you know, from Michael Acton Smith, who's oh, now, you know, oh, I mean, he basically had he Firebox. Is. And I've still got the letter, actually. I've put that when he started Firebox saying, you're, you're, you know, to people like really? that. I mean, oh that he, gosh, he's my hero. He went on to of, Moshi Monsters yeah, exactly. Calm. And now you know, Calm. And he was, a yeah. And, but I come across so many people who tell me. And the thing I, I love about anyone who can do it is, with with a coffee bar, you know, I mean, coffee public we built, but then it's not around anymore the way we built it. But I found what I love, which is why I'm now on my third book, is when you write a book, so when I write anyone can do it, no one can come and change the book. No one can come and like take a page out or, you know, it's your book and you've written it the way you want it. And still, I still people come to me and say, oh my God, I read anyone can do it. And that's inspired me to start a business. So that for me is is really the, the high point. It's, it's, it's why I live every day and I, I believe in it. And someone who you think has inspired you on your journey that I might interview on this podcast? Um, I think uh, Margaret Murray for Organic Pharmacy. Yeah, I know she you've done all fantastic. the, you know, people like Joe Malone and stuff. I absolutely adore, but I know you've done them. So yes, Margaret Murray yeah. for Organic Pharmacy it, is wonderful. You know, again, you know, that's why I just can't believe there are all these amazing stories that we don't know yet. And we've got to get them, you know, out, out. of the woodwork, get yeah. them out. People think this yeah. because it's all the same story. And then people will realise there's a pattern to this. Yes. And the pattern is that chaos and not knowing and just getting from A to B. That's the only pattern there is. Well, I hope with this podcast, this is exactly what I'm trying yeah. to capture. The chaos, the, the ups, the downs, the tears, the blood, the sweat, and how normal it is. And yeah. how it is the shared, that's the shared journey, yeah, isn't it? absolutely. That's the shared journey. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It has just been a complete privilege and... I know it's going to change. You talk about the lives that your books have changed. And I know that this podcast is going to change lives. Your story is one of the greats, you know, from being the first to change the culture in the UK from that nation of tea drinkers to coffee drinkers. But sharing all your wisdom, advice, the war scars with the next generation of entrepreneurs to now helping entrepreneurs be a force for good with this new amazing coffee company. You've been so generous with your time and advice and you're a big inspiration to me some of the things that we've touched on today are ringing very very true to me and not many people talk about them and so it's just it's an absolute honor and I knew from the moment I met you I adored you so <laughs> it's just Thank such a privilege it. to be sitting here and this is the point that um, I asked my guests to maybe get out their letter to their younger self that they have prepared and I, I don't know what it's going to say but I want to thank you in advance for sharing a little piece of your soul today with us all thank you Sahar thank you Holly absolutely loved it thank you thank you so my letter to myself is dear 25 year old me um, I know you're struggling to find something whereby every day when you go to work it's not punishment and that you'll have a spring in your step I know you feel you're not really good at what you do that you're not playing to your strengths at the moment at this law firm I know that you see others are shining, but you're not. You're bored, you're unsatisfied, and it doesn't use the best of you, so you're not really doing a great job at it. But I can tell you, you will, you will find that. You will find something you love doing. You will find your star. You will find something where who you are and what you do. Sorry. No, it's... It's so emotional when you go there, isn't it? It's crazy. God, amazing. It's, keep going, it's beautiful. 
you'll find something where who you are and what you do will align just perfectly. Where work won't feel like work. It'll feel like stuff you do outside a normal life. Work will never be the opposite of play again for you. You will find an area you'll be so good at that it'll, it's just instinctive to you. It'll just happen. But the one thing I'll tell you is you can never, ever imagine how it will happen. Through this journey of personal discovery you're going through, this asking, this questioning that there has to be more, through these defeats, through these struggles, banging your head against the brick wall and knocking on closed doors, the ups and downs, you will eventually get there. You will get what you want. But much, much more than even your imagination permits you. You don't even know how limited even your wildest dreams are. Because what you will get will be beyond what you can even imagine as your 25-year-old self. And of course, life won't go to plan. You will suffer losses, losses you could never have imagined living with. You will lose the two people that brought you up and you can't ever imagine living without them. But somehow you will actually cope and you will thrive because of the strength and love building up inside of you now. Because of all the lessons and all the love and all the mentorship they have given you. For everything that doesn't go to plan, to the fact that life is never how you plan it, you will receive the most extraordinary blessings as well. And let me just remind you of that poem. If you can fill the unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distant run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. <laughs> you just, you know, it's just the... You, when I was researching you, I just thought, I don't know, you need to be like a statue for all of us to to aspire to be like. And what you have done and built and the fact that you can sit here and bear your soul and help us and help us women and help us all with this vulnerability as such a successful woman... It oh just sends shivers down my spine. No, but you are very, very special. You're very special and you were one of the first. And 25 years later, we're sitting here and you can talk that way. And, and we still have something. Right? And thing, you, you still say. do. And you just are that. It's shining out of you. If you've enjoyed this episode with Zahar, I'd love to suggest listening to my conversation with Julie Dean, founder of the Cambridge Satchel Company, another incredible woman who has built a phenomenal brand. Search Conversations of Inspiration wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed listening, if it's helped or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support really does mean the world to me. It helps spread the word and will inspire more people to build a life they love. And for all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, 
Holly's Desk Notes over at holly.co. Mm-hmm.